It's Monday the 25th of January 2021, the start of the Davos Agenda Week, and this is Radio Davos. 2021 will be a pivotal year for the future of humankind. In 2021, what we think is a real priority for all leaders across all countries is to ensure a people's vaccine. There have been only 15 black CEOs in the Fortune 500 in the last 62 years. Two languages don't need any translation. That is music and photography. I listen to many podcasts that are sent to me all around the world, but I obviously love the Davos podcast. (laughs) That's definitely one that I tune into. Hello and welcome to Radio Davos on day one of the Davos Agenda Week. Every day this podcast will look ahead to the main events on the programme, the big issues, the big names. We hope one or two big ideas. I'm joined today by my co-host Roshana Shanbog. She's finance editor at The Economist and host of The Economist's Money Talks podcast. Hi Roshana, how are you? Hi Robin, thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You are the first co-host on the first Radio Davos podcast from the very first virtual Davos. So tell us something about yourself. We all know about The Economist, but for those of us who don't know about Money Talks podcast, what is that? Of course, it's our weekly podcast on business, finance and economics. So we'll talk about the top stories of that week um, with the correspondents who are writing those stories for The Economist, but also interviewing outside voices. And it's about 20 minutes long, comes out every Tuesday. And I recommend, I, I strongly recommend to your listeners that they download it. And how familiar are you with Davos? Well, I've never been myself, but of course, as a journalist, um, I've, I've covered the various statements by the various bigwigs um, at, that happens at the event. So it's certainly something that um, I've paid attention to in the past. Let's hear a clip from one of the World Economic Forum's managing directors. This is Sarita Nayar on the fact that this is the first virtual Davos. We are very excited about the virtual Davos meeting that we are having starting today. Um, it's a meeting where we are bringing world leaders, heads of state. We have uh, today our president of China speaking with us, and we will be during the week bringing lots of different heads of state from different countries, including India, Japan, Korea. And so really virtually we are trying to create the same ecosystem of people and leaders to come together to work on the issues collectively. Let's look ahead then to what's going on today on day one, rather than shuffling through the snow well before the crack of dawn at Davos, which is a ski resort, the highest town in the Alps, so we're told. That's what I did last year, this time last year. I'm in the comfort of my own home, as will be many of today's speakers. And the reason for that is the pandemic. So it's no surprise that the pandemic, COVID-19, is literally at the top of the agenda for the Davos Agenda Week. Can I just play this clip from Klaus Schwab, who founded the World Economic Forum more than 50 years ago, on the importance of 2021 as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic. 2021 will be a crucial, it will be a pivotal year for the future of humankind. It will be crucial because we have to continue to fight the virus, but we have to move out of the pandemic and we have to create sound economic growth, which is more resilient, more inclusive, and more sustainable. But what we have to do above all is to restore trust in our world. 
Trust is needed in order to overcome the crisis, but trust is needed as a base to have a future-oriented mind and to construct the world for tomorrow. So that's Klaus Schwab, the executive chairman and founder of the World Economic Forum, on the importance. Probably every year we say this is the most crucial year, but I think there are a couple of reasons for that um, this year. And one of them is this incredible pandemic, which in all our lifetimes, we've never seen anything like it. Roshana, what do you think are the most pressing questions for COVID-19 that maybe we can get some answers to at a meeting like the Davos Agenda? One of the most pressing questions is how quickly can people be vaccinated? And you've seen um, different rich countries going down different paths on this. So, for example, here in the UK, um, the government has is experimenting almost with um, giving people only one dose of a vaccine. Um, in Brazil, we're seeing Russia, the Russian and Chinese vaccines being tested. So everybody's going to be watching everybody else and figure, figuring out um, what is the best way to get the most vulnerable people vaccinated the most quickly. And then on top of that, there's the question of whether in poorer countries, um, the vulnerable vulnerable people will be able to be vaccinated in the first place. There's a question of distribution as well across um, both within countries and between them. So that's one really big question. Absolutely. And it's going to be a real test, I think, of global cooperation. Already the pandemic has revealed inequalities. Well, we already knew they were there, but it's exposed them even more brutally both within our own societies, every country, I think it's shown that the poorer people and the marginalised people have been hit even worse than the others, although everyone's been hit hard by this. And then also the international inequality. Um, so on that, actually, let me just play you this clip from Gabriela Boucher, who's the executive director at Oxfam International. In 2021, what we think is a real priority for all leaders across all countries is to ensure a people's vaccine ensure availability of the vaccine for everyone. Um, that will make sure that the widening inequality doesn't continue to widen. At the moment, we, we know that one in 10 people would be accessing the vaccine in developing countries in 2021, and that's clearly not enough. I will continue to put people um, in, in the disadvantaged position. So we need pharmaceutical companies to share their know-how, the technological know-how to enable um, the vaccine to be produced at scale. It's a supply issue. So how do we produce the vaccine in big enough numbers, in billions, so that the whole world population is vaccinated in, in a shorter time than is currently the case? So that's the head of Oxfam International. We'll be hearing another clip from her later in this episode, Gabriella Boucher. COVID-19 will be discussed in various ways throughout the week but particularly on day one. Let's hear Sarita Nayar again from the World Economic Forum on what will happen on day one in the discussions about COVID-19. So COVID is, of course, uh, a very critical one. And as you said, we are going to have many sessions today on day one on COVID. It's been a year almost, and we are at, uh, you know, with 95 million cases and over 2 million deaths, this is a very high priority. So we will be talking about um, how we continue to handle this pandemic. And we, are, we have a session on responding to COVID-19 crisis. We will be talking about how we need to get the vaccines to more people and to make sure that everybody in all parts of the world has access to it. We will be uh, also talking about um, 
how we actually get the mass production needed as well as get it to the last mile delivery. And one of the things that we have learned from this pandemic, which will also be covered, is what happens next? How do we make sure that we don't have this experience ever again? How do we make sure that our health system, political system, economic system can deal with the pandemic in the future in a much better way? Um, so putting aside COVID slightly, let's turn to the economy. We're the World Economic Forum. You're the economist. So we should have something to say about it. There are two sessions called Restoring Economic Growth. I should just say this to the listeners, people who are following all the events online at Davos Agenda Week. A lot of these sessions are split into two. You'll see if you go to the website, um, option one and option two. Uh, apart from anything else, this serves the two time zones. So people in Asia, if they want to follow live, um, there'll usually be a session that works for them. For people in the Americas, there'll be a later session. And that's, uh, But also because these are big issues with lots of very interesting people speaking on them, there are two bites of the cherry, if you like. So um, there are a couple of sessions on restoring economic growth. And obviously that is restoring after or as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, Roshana, as a finance reporter for The Economist, um, you might be interested in listening in to people like Christine Lagarde, former IMF chief, now the head of the European Central Bank, Bruno Le Maire, the economy minister of France. We've got the governor of the Bank of Japan, the finance minister of Indonesia, um, lots of others. Um, and also there's a special address from Chinese President Xi Jinping at, at 1 p.m. Geneva time, Central European time. Any of those spark interest in you? What What are the themes you would like to hear them discussing when it comes to the global economy? Well, all of them spark interest. I think there are two sorts of challenges that all of these policymakers are going to be facing. One is to ensure that growth, that the economy can sort of uh, carry on even as the pandemic continues. So that's a case of making sure that people have enough, um, um, even even when economies are in lockdown, that people have enough money to be able to spend and that you know we don't see the huge downturns that we did at the start of the pandemic last year. Um, the second challenge is once the pandemic's out of the way and once people have been vaccinated, how do you ensure that there's a sort of sustainable recovery, which sort of Klaus was talking about? Um, both of those are really important questions. And there's a sequencing sort of issue where, you know, we've seen about $12 trillion, I think, in stimulus spent worldwide last year, according to the IMF. Um, you know, when does that need to be um, withdrawn or how does the nature of that need to change as the economy and the recovery sort of takes takes hold? Those are really big questions. And, you know, after the financial crisis, we saw governments start to pull back a little bit too soon they, uh, with austerity in the rich world. And, you know, as Christine Lagarde will probably know really well from her time at the IMF, that proved to be a mistake and, you know, recovery started to falter. So this time around, I think um, we'll be looking for signs that governments realise that um, we need to have uh, plenty of stimulus in place until the recovery is is sort of well and truly in place. You know, we've also seen, for example, from President Biden indications that, um, you know, he, he wants to think about the ways in which the social, social contract should change. So, for example, he's announced um, increases in minimum wage. Um, well, he would like to implement increases in minimum wage and um, uh, make uh, child tax benefits more 
um, more generous. So that's another question potentially that policymakers might be thinking about and something that might be particularly important in China, because we've seen from the 2020 GDP figures that while um, production and manufacturing has recovered quite strongly, it's consumption that's still lagging behind. So that might be something that's on Xi Jinping's mind, whether he talks about it today or not. And Xi Jinping, if you're listening to this in the morning of day one, he'll be on at one o'clock, 1300 hours Central European time. You can follow it live across social media and at wef.ch slash Davos Agenda. Let's stay with the issue of inequality and look at, as well as wealth inequality, racial inequality. I'm going to play you this clip. This is from another World Economic Forum Managing Director, Sadia Zahidi, and this is what she has to say about racial diversity of boardrooms at big companies. There have been only 15 black CEOs in the Fortune 500 in the last 62 years. That gives you a pretty good sense of what is happening overall in terms of economic opportunity, in terms of opportunity for progression, and broadly speaking, in terms of social justice. We believe that businesses have a unique role to play when it comes to building racial justice across our economies and societies. They have a role to play in terms of their own employees and how they can ensure that they have more racially diverse workforces. But they also have a role to play in embedding racial justice across their production, across their consumption models, and ensuring that they're reaching broadly out into their communities. So with that in mind, we have tried to bring together businesses that want to be the first, the founding partners of this initiative, and we expect more than 25 of some of the largest companies that want to put this method in place. Now, we've all seen lots of businesses make announcements about the efforts that they'll be putting in place to be anti-racist organizations and to do more for racial justice. And that is important. But if those efforts happen in a siloed way, it will not necessarily lead to the impact that it could lead to if they're working in a more coordinated way. And that's the fundamental principle of this initiative. The forum's Sadia Zahidi on the launch of the Coalition to Tackle Racism in the Workplace. Since we recorded that, the number of companies signing up has increased to more than 45. These are companies pledging to table racial and ethnic equity as an issue on the board agenda, to make at least one firm commitment towards racial justice, and to put a long-term strategy in place towards becoming an anti-racist organisation. We can hear from the head of one of these companies. This is the chief executive of Coca-Cola, James Quincy, on the challenges and opportunities of embracing diversity. Just because you have a room full of diverse people does not mean you have an inclusive environment that allows you to get the best of the thinking and the best of the interactions from those diverse people. In fact, it's harder. Um, uh, it's harder to get a diverse group of people to do one thing uh, immediately than people who all know each other. But in the long run, it's much more powerful. So that again, there's more of an ask on those team members and especially on the leaders and managers to be able to create the environment that actually brings that diverse collection of people uh, into a team um, that there is inclusion so that actually we get the power uh, of the diversity and it takes us to a more impactful place. So Roshana, do you think these can be meaningful actions by big companies. Shareholders may be more concerned about ES, so-called ESG, environmental, social and governance issues now, perhaps as a result of the pandemic. Um, and that might force or encourage um, companies to change. Um, 
company's own sort of workforce and customers might um, seek greater racial diversity. So there are many sort of incentives that might encourage um, companies to to become more um, diverse or to sort of support their local communities. At the same time, it may well be that that some companies are sort of paying lip service to the matter and are sort of hoping it will go away. And the other question is how much companies alone can do, because there is a lot of uh, systemic um, disadvantages that, um, you know, for example, black people in America face. And um, some of that might be the task of government to fix. So thinking here of the fact that, you know, income inequality and wealth inequality just hasn't budged for such a long time in in America. Um, and, and ultimately, that might require sort of greater access to education and opportunities. Yeah. And, and racial inequality is, is a global issue as well. I think in every single country around the world, where there are differences in ethnicity, there's always marginalised or disadvantaged communities. Let's hear again from Oxfam, Gabriella Boucher, the executive director of Oxfam International. So this year that has been so difficult and so painful for so many of us, millions of people who've lost loved ones and so many also who have lost their jobs, their livelihoods and who have actually lost even a roof over their heads. On the other side of the equation, we have 10 billionaires who've made half a trillion dollars during the pandemic period. And we know now from an analysis that inequality has widened um, beyond anything that we've seen before. So since records began, this is the point at which inequality has been at its highest. If we continue in this direction, we know that the negative effects of inequality will just spiral. And this inequality virus that we feel is, is what is taking hold at the moment will continue to affect people. So if you're poor, if you're a woman, if you're from a marginalized racial or ethnic group, you'll be hit harder. And we have unfortunately many examples of women are hard hit because they're more represented in those sectors that have been hit by the pandemic. So 112 million women would not have lost their jobs if they were not uh, in those most hard hit sectors. Equally in terms of the pandemic, In Brazil, if you're Afro-descendant, you're 40% more likely to be affected by the virus. And many more Afro-Brazilians would be alive today if if that inequality wasn't there. So there are many elements that need to be addressed urgently now. And I think if the pandemic doesn't really bring us to act on the issue of inequality, what will? Gabriela Boucher, Executive Director of Oxfam International, who is presenting Oxfam's annual inequality report at the Davos Agenda on day one. Now to today's interview, or on this occasion, interviews. Although this is day one of the Davos Agenda week, the week actually started on Sunday with the presentation of the Crystal Awards, which the World Economic Forum gives each year to important artists whose influence on the world goes beyond their art and into their communities. The online ceremony on Sunday evening included a remarkable concert filmed on location in nature in Afghanistan, Austria, Brazil, China, Italy and South Africa. You can watch the whole film called See Me, a global concert on our website. Among the performers were cellist Yo-Yo Ma and this is the Drakensberg Boys Choir from South Africa.
The two recipients of this year's Crystal Awards were the Ghanaian-British architect Sir David Adjaye, whom we'll hear from in a moment, and veteran Brazilian photographer Sebastião Salgado, whose often harrowing black and white images of war and famine have documented some of the darkest sides of humanity. He spent the last seven years taking pictures in the Amazon, a place where he's also involved in rainforest restoration. He was asked, what makes a good photograph? If you, you are not in love with the planet, if you are not in love with the Indian communities, you cannot be there. Because if it's not your story, you cannot do it. But if it is your story, you are part of it. And photography is it. Photography is just a mirror of the society. Sometimes people say, Sebastian, you are an artist. I say, no, I am a photographer. It's a privilege to be a photographer. Photography brings you there. Photography drive you in the most important months of the life of the society that you are part of it. Probably the biggest challenge that I have in all my life long is when uh, in the 90s, I was built on a story about the migration. Because I'm a migrant, I'm a refugee. A story that took me about seven years to photograph uh, the displaced population around the world. In the most difficult months in my life, I live in the former Yugoslavia. I live in the genocide in Rwanda when I lose the hope about my humankind, my peace. We are so violent. I saw so dramatic moments in my life. I saw so many people die and die by the violence of the others. And that, uh, for me, was very difficult. Very, very difficult. I, in this moment, I was about to abandon photography. Some things you don't photograph. Something is so hard that's better to get your cameras put in the ground and cry. Because it's very difficult, very difficult moments. Some moments you must photograph because you must show what's happening, that the things don't happen no more. Sometimes people come to your camera like they were come to speak in a microphone. They come to speak to your lens, ask you to do to photograph. I was with big groups of refugees in Africa, in many different spaces, many different points in photography but always alone. In this moment, you need to have a concept, your personal concept of ethics. And what is ethics? Ethics is one for you. is one different for me, for different for other persons. And in this moment, you must choose what to do, what not to do. It's very difficult, it's very hard. Sebastião Salgado, the other recipient of a Crystal Award this year is the architect Sir David Adjaye, best known for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and who is now working on the Tabo and Becky Presidential Library in Johannesburg. They're both remarkable buildings. If you want to see them, visit the Radio Davos section of the website, wf.ch slash Davos Agenda. Here's David Adjaye on the Mbeki Library. This probably will be, the, I think, the first presidential library from an African leader, I think. Um, there are a few sort of presidential libraries, but this will be the first, I think, significant purpose-built um, presidential library, and one which is also going to deal with um, being the archive uh, for African liberation movements uh, around the continent. So it's a kind of precursor before 
those institutions set up their own spaces. That I wanted that the um, the reference for the form really sought its identity deep in the history of the the topologies and technologies, if I can say that, of the African continent. And what I mean by that is that um, I wanted to look at a form that was ubiquitous across the continent. Um, and in the end, the form that I became very fascinated by were grain stores. The grain stores are the, all the agrarian communities, which are the foundations of all the cultures across the continent, whether they're pastoral or uh, agrarian land-based um, uh, sort of communities. And what seemed to unify almost all of them, you know, there are some that are rock, is this use of the earth as, a, as an element to be elevated on some kind of plinth structure, stone or timber, and to use that as a kind of a technology to store grain that is the science of how these civilizations multiplied and grew because they could store, store food, they could survive seasons, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and that, that idea of the technology of that form, which allowed all these incredible people to kind of you know, flourish all over the continent, but also for these communities to learn an intelligence, which is then handed generation to generation to have survived to become the world that we now know, is the store, is the library, is the metaphor of the library. So in a way, this idea of the grain store, which you think of as a simple container, is actually the, the, the crucible of generations of learning and survival. And in a way, for me, it's analogous to what the president is trying to do, this idea of being a crucible of knowledge that transmits to other generations. It takes the form of eight, sort of as I call it, granary stores, chambers, that are scaled on the size of, you know, grand rooms, sort of soaring, sort of vaulted spaces. But what we hope that we will demonstrate is the intelligence of that, um, of that form, which is to create climate-moderated, zero-carbon footprint architecture, which is actually at the foundation also of what traditional African architecture was about. It's really this idea of, of wanting to, to understand and demonstrate how to use history without mimicking it, but the National Museum of African American History and Culture is, a, is the classic example of, you know, it was the moment where I had the confidence to really absolutely use that trope of history. And to use a form to understand a translation into a building. Now, um, the form in that case was a karyatid, the kind of crown of a karyatid. But it was the deep inspiration for how to create a double skin system that would basically create an environmental buffer for the content of the museum as a kind of treasure box shielded in this corona facade. And the corona facade acting as a climate moderator to reduce energy consumption, to deal with solar glare, to allow visibility, and all the things that we really you know, take for granted in the 21st century, but actually are energy taxing and sometimes environmentally taxing. And this is David Adjay on his innovative building techniques. You know, that sometimes I use, you know, very traditional looking things, but also I use incredibly innovative materials. So for instance, you think that the Smithsonian building is made from maybe, you know, cast bronze, but it's actually cast recycled aluminium with a, with a kind of polymer, you know, a new sort of polymer sort of coating, which is basically a new way of making something that looks 
like metal, but it's kind of like a paint and metal mixed together. It's totally 21st century technology. And it's like almost indestructible, you know, and it's, it's a new super material that makes you think something's as old as, you know, the pyramids, but actually it's a, it could never have existed then. It only exists now. And it's also about how we reuse and can re kind of use, reuse uh, materials that have been discarded. So the recycling and the upcycling of materials is really the demonstration of the building. And that it's all about upcycling and reusing things that have been, and had a different life. And um, I'm very proud of that. And I think that's very 21st century. And is the way we must work. So David Adjay and before him, Sebastião Salgado, this year's Crystal Award winners. Remember, you can follow the Davos Agenda live and on catch-up at wef.ch slash Davos Agenda. And that's where you can also hear all episodes of Radio Davos as they land. And you can subscribe to the podcast version on our Great Reset feed. Just search either Radio Davos or The Great Reset, wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Davos is a podcast from the World Economic Forum. It was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with additional reporting by Charlotte Beale, Gail Markovitz, Anna Bruce Lockhart and Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. Huge thanks to my co-host, Roshana Shamburg of The Economist. Please check out her podcast, Money Talks. And I'll be back tomorrow with a new co-host, Gillian Tett of The Financial Times. In the meantime, thanks to you for listening. And I'll leave you with a bit more from the concert See Me and the Drakensberg Boys Choir. See?